This is Criminal Behaviorology, a combination of criminology and behavior analysis to assist the criminal and civil justice systems to improve our society in general. A podcast like no other. Here is your host, Timothy Joseph. It's empty, Captain. We saw the bullets come out. Let's see what he does. Let's see what Bub does in this situation. inclined to do that for you, Captain. Is this your progress? Is this the shit supposed to knock our socks off? It's the beginning, yes. It's the bare beginning of social behavior. Civilized behavior. Civil behavior is what distinguishes us from the lower forms. It's what enables us to communicate. To go about things in an orderly fashion without attacking each other like beasts in the wild. Civility must be rewarded, Captain. If it isn't rewarded, there's no use for it. There's just no use for it at all. I'd say that was dramatic. Uh, This is your host... Timothy Joseph for Criminal Behaviorology, and you just heard a small segment from the 1985 George Romero film, Day of the Dead. Apparently it's been remade, I believe, since, but this was the one I remember uh, watching in a rather entertaining picture about zombies having taken over the world and of course a mad scientist who's really a behavioral scientist uh, trying to find a way to uh, make them behave and that that little segment you saw the some of the controversies that you could imagine would result from such a mission if you haven't seen the film, maybe you should check it out sometime. I, the reason I'm playing it for you is something I came across, and maybe you think this is a bit of a silly subject matter, but I think it uh, makes the point, actually, if you get past the supernatural elements of it and just let your imagination stretch a little bit. We are approaching the Halloween season we're in the halloween season so we're headed toward the day itself 
and I happened to come across something from the AubreyDaniels.com website. Aubrey Daniels, if you don't know uh, him, look up some of his work, important work with behavior analysis and organizations, some of those areas. Very interesting stuff, very pertinent stuff for working with organizations and organization behavior management in today's time period. There was an article, I guess you could say they're blogs now, on the AubreyDaniels.com by Kenan Andy Littell, L-A-T-T-A-L. He's from West Virginia University, and the title was How to Shape a Zombie. How to Shape a Zombie. Uh, so, uh, about Dr. Littell... Dr. Littell is a centennial professor of psychology at West Virginia University. He received his Ph.D. degree in experimental and clinical psychology from the University of Alabama, joining West Virginia University faculty in 1972. He's authored 140 research articles and chapters on conceptual, experimental, and applied topics in behavior analysis, and edited seven books and journal special issues, including the American Psychological Association's memorial tribute to B.F. Skinner. He has mentored 40 doctoral students and has served as coordinator of West Virginia University's Behavior Analysis Program from 1982 to 2012. So he wrote How to Shape a Zombie in about 2014 and I'm I went ahead and asked him to be a guest but he is staying in Japan right now so the the hours time difference would not make uh, for a very good interview but he was nice enough to uh, write back with some email questions that I had about this particular Post, and I'm going to go through it, and then I'm going to read Dr. Littell's responses to my email questions. This is How to Shape a Zombie. Yes, yes, I know that one is supposed to say how to shape zombie behavior, but hey, it's Halloween and weird things happening are okay. And what could be weirder than thinking about how to shape the behavior, see, got it right, of a zombie? Where to start? First, you need a zombie. You have two choices. Catch one coming to your house disguised as a trick-or-treater. They often do that at this time of year, but don't be fooled and mistakenly grab a human disguised as a zombie in a botched discrimination reversal failure. Or go to where there is reputedly the largest zombie population on Earth, Haiti. Either way, you'll need to refer to the latest version of, this is an actual source here, Guidelines for the Housing and Care of Zombies, Ghoul 1833, which will tell you how to keep your zombie healthy, does it really matter, and happy. Where you keep your zombie is your business, but I wouldn't keep it upstairs, especially at night. Next, you'll need a place to work with your zombie. I recommend some place from which you can escape quickly if things get dicey. 
as they often do with zombies, as we've seen in zombie movies. I also recommend taking a few lessons in rapid hand and arm movement. Otherwise, you may not only lose a finger, you may find yourself on the wrong side of somebody. Did I say that? Else's zombie-shaping experiment. End up on the wrong side of somebody else's zombie-shaping experiment. Hmm? You'll also have to find a reinforcer. Zombies, as is well known, strongly prefer human brains. Brains, brains! Don't even think about using human brains as the reinforcer. And the truth of the matter is, zombies are really pretty stupid. Pardon the labeling and the mentalism. And can be easily fooled. I recommend substituting roadkill, but wear rubber gloves and a mask for obvious reasons. Skinner, 1953, observed that in shaping, through a series of successive approximations, one brings a response existing in some form of the organism's repertoire to the terminal, probably a bad word to use around a zombie, form. So we'll need to select a response for shaping. Applying to the living dead the same principles that applies to living humans in applied settings, it is desirable to study a response with some social relevance. And that, of course, refers to Bear, Wolf, and Risley, 1968. Zombies, do, zombies don't do much, and what they do, they do slowly. One thing they do, especially at night, is wander around aimlessly and eat people's brains. It would be a benefit to society if zombies don't eat the brains of people. Well, at least most people. Thereby not only disrupting families and society, but also creating more zombies. One potential way of at least slowing the pace of zombie growth, then, might be to stop zombies from wandering around aimlessly or not so aimlessly as well. To do so, we could shape staying in one place, sitting. Indeed, this could be the beginning of a whole campaign to control zombies. Maybe with the slogan, quote, keep them in their seats and off our streets, unquote. Right. With reinforcer in hand and target response selected, let the fun begin at least for you, but not, of course, for the zombie, need I remind you that they have no life. Navigate your zombie, carefully watch those fingers, to the workspace. It is highly unlikely it will sit at first, which is good news because this is what you want to teach the zombie to do. Don't let it mindlessly... Again, excuse the mentalism, but with zombies, it probably is true. Wander off so that you lose all control. Realize it does no good to instruct your zombie to sit. Their behavior is notoriously unresponsive to human verbal commands. Besides, most probably don't speak English anyway. So just start shaping. Follow the well-established principle of delivering reinforcers over time for responses that are closer and closer approximations to the target response 
while withholding reinforcers when the response drifts from the one targeted. Just like the children's game of you're getting warmer, colder, except substitute zombie for child and roadkill or its withholding for warmer, colder. Remember to deliver the reinforcers with some carry, with some care. Remember to deliver the reinforcers with some care. No fingers in zombie mouths. And on the subject of reinforcer delivery, normally one is very concerned about immediately reinforcing successive approximations to the target response. Temporal frameworks are different with zombies. They don't die, nor are they really alive. So their internal clocks, which, by the way, they have to restuff in their heads from time to time as their faces wear off, are set differently, read all messed up, than the really living. The point is that immediacy of reinforcement for a zombie may be 20 hours after a response. I think that all messed up line is a reference to a line from the new movie Night of the Living Dead where a, a guy referred to a sheriff trying to hunt the zombies down and said they were all messed up. Movie trivia. It is just because of this latter point that shaping may take a long time. Several years, in fact. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the behavioral process knowing that in the end you will have a zombie who will sit in a chair. Lucky you. And Happy Halloween from the Aubrey Daniels Institute. Well, that's all in good humor, but I think it does make the point about basic shaping of behavior and that it could even apply to zombies. And I found it interesting that in George Romero's movie... That same basic idea, I'm not sure if Dr. Littell had encountered that, but that idea was in that movie, and that sparked my interest. Most movies do not portray those in behavior analysis or behavioral science in a positive light, and in, in the Day of the Dead, it was kind of a mad scientist under under stressful conditions trying to save the world from zombies. So that's how to shape a zombie. So I emailed Dr. Latal, and uh, I'm going to go over some of the responses that he gave. I asked him, does he prefer Andy or uh, Kenan Latal? He responded, curse the middle name. My mother preferred Andy, so Andy it is to this day. I asked, are you still writing for the Aubrey Daniels Institute? What is the mission of this organization is what has been your input? He said. Now the Institute closed its doors about four years ago and then shut down the separate Institute website. I wrote for them until the Institute closed. Aubrey wanted to move more into primary education and so decided to put his effort into that. If you like the zombie blog, try the one on Skinner's twin brother, which I also wrote on the same site. I had such fun with those humorous ones and was very appreciative of Aubrey's flexibility in letting me write for them. But I also equally enjoyed writing the more serious ones about the science and philosophy of behaviorism. It was a great experience. Now I'm writing a regular blog for ABA Technologies. 
but I have not tried my wit on that side. I will, I will. I asked him, what prompted your interest in using zombies as an example to explain shaping of behavior? I wanted to do something, quote, special, unquote, for Halloween that would be of general and seasonal interest and also be a little humorous. I was teaching a course in the experimental analysis of behavior that semester and for Halloween. I always make an appearance as Pigeon Man delivering M&Ms as treats to the class. I guess it sort of fell out of the whole Halloween spirit. As I recall, zombies were big in the culture at large at the time, so I thought I should keep up with the times. Well, good. So I asked him, what is the con- why is the concept of shaping important? Do you think it is misunderstood as a concept? He wrote, it is probably our most valuable tool and our greatest contribution to the bettering of human condition. I don't know that it is misunderstood, just not understood. Once it is explained to people, most seem to get it, at least in principle. Many people really don't know how to do, I thought, simple though it is in principle. Most people don't really know how to do shaping, I thought, though it is simple in principle. How many times have we seen someone try to teach someone something and it is obvious they don't know about shaping or don't know how to do it? I love to watch students learn to shape. It is like they are being shaped as much as the pigeon is. And when they get it, the light bulb goes off. So, this is what you mean about shaping. If I could give every new person encountering behavior analysis for the first time the opportunity to shape a pigeon's key pick, I would be a happy man. And they would be better behavior analysts for the experience. Then I asked, you mentioned social relevance as being significant in terms of how to redirect zombie behavior. What makes social relevance important, and how do we determine what might be socially relevant in one case or another? He wrote back, oh, good question. We see misdirected behavior all the time, people wasting their time on frivolous tasks, like writing zombie blogs when they could direct their repertoires to more societally useful actions. Of course, what is useful and what is not is a complicated issue that can't be assessed on the fly, so to speak. A zombie blog may interest more people than shaping in shaping than 50 articles on, and he refers to the Journal of Experimental Analysis of Behavior, the JEAB, or J-E-A-B, or JABA, the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis. So I tread into the area of social relevance and impact very lightly. Fortunately, the we to whom you refer is a diverse group with different ideas about relevance. That is a very good thing, for it is out of a variation, a variation that behavior and species are selected. If we have too few people making too many rules about what is a good application of something and what is not, we lose our variation, diversity, and the discipline will suffer if not undergo extinction.
I am first and foremost a basic scientist. I hate it when people ask me to tell them the relevance of what I do. I am helping build the science of behavior. And there are people far more insightful than me who can or cannot figure out how to apply it. Then I wrote to him in an email question. You wrote you may have to, quote, navigate, unquote, the zombie and it does no good to instruct them just to sit, is the use of physical prompts to shape a behavior the first step? How does one go about deciding where to start in terms of shaping behavior, and how fast one should proceed from one step to the next? He wrote back, My short answer is either yes, or it depends. Instructions can be useful and can save time. We all know their limitations, too. Zombies don't have much of a verbal repertoire, at least the ones I know. How many does he know? So one has to figure out how to change their behavior by other means. You can tell a zombie all day not to eat that brain, but guess what? One starts at the beginning of a course. And the beginning is idiosyncratic to organisms and circumstances. I think you look and see what you have at the start and you have a very and you have a well specified target behavior at the end one of my undergraduate stars spent the better part of an academic year teaching shaping and he describes it two pigeons on a task in which one had to stand on a platform and allow another to eat after which they had to change places she just reported the project at the ABAI Stockholm meeting. Well, I was just there. When the pigeons started, they wouldn't even stand on the table. They kept flying away. But over the year, they shaped uh, the graduate student to shape them into a calm, cool, and cooperative pair. Eating and sharing each session away. In this area, in this era of political correctness, it would be best not to engage the zombie in physical contact, contact if it can be avoided. Lawyer zombies will eat your brains out. More generally, one rarely needs physical contact to help to shape responding. In my experience, at least with pigeons, if physical contact helps and it gets the behavior going and it is within ethical guidelines, go for it. I asked, what is the significance of temporal frameworks in shaping? Do you find people are frustrated in the success of shaping because, with zombies or people, the progress can be so slow? So his answer to that question was, when my students tell me they are having trouble shaping their zombie, and it is because a zombie has no brain and can't learn, I either remind them of Skinner's dictum that the subject is always right, or I demean them by telling them it is a poor shaper who blames the zombie. If things are slow or are not going well, admittedly it could be the zombie. But the zombie is the last place to look. Ours is a science of environmental determinants, making the environment the first place to look. And the most prominent feature in that shaping environment is the shaper, assuming that the reinforcer 
is really a reinforcer and the physical features of the environment are conducive to learning. The shapee, that would be the zombie, does exactly what the shaper is asking. So if things aren't going well, start doing things differently. Like any learned response, shaping requires practice to become an expert. Shaping is at this point as much art as science. There are very few papers regarding the shaping process. A particularly good one uh, he has attached, and I'll, I'll go ahead and put the link for that one, done long ago by Dave Eckerman and colleagues. Some of the really cool stuff on shaping has come from computer versions of shaping by people like Joe Pear at the University of Manitoba in Canada. So the and that last sentiment, he's he's pretty much describing how it's you could say the customer is always right, or it's not the student, it is the teacher, it is the environmental contingencies that we're putting in place that are making uh, the difference. So just to blame the subject, if you can use that term, or the zombie, or whatever you're trying to shape, does us no good. Drag a couple of those chairs together. There's a socket over here. Now you better watch this and try to understand what's going on. I don't want anyone's life on my hands. Is there anything I can do to I don't want to hear any more from you, mister. If you stay up here, you take orders from me. And that includes leaving the girl alone. It's on, it's on. There's no sound. Play with the rabbit ears. Its reports, incredible as they seem, are not the results of mass hysteria. Mass hysteria? What do they think we're imagining all this? Shut up! In all parts of the country, the wave of murder which is sweeping the eastern third of the nation is being committed by creatures who feast upon the flesh of their victims. First eyewitness accounts of this grisly development came from people who were understandably frightened and almost incoherent. Officials and newsmen at first discounted there was eyewitness descriptions as being beyond belief. However, the reports persisted. Medical examinations of some of the victims bore out the fact that they had been partially devoured. I think we have some late word of just arriving, and I'll interrupt to bring this to you. This is the latest disclosure in a report from National Civil Defense Headquarters in Washington. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. A widespread investigation of reports from funeral homes, morgues, and hospitals has concluded that the unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. It's hard for us here to believe what we're reporting to you, but it does seem to be a fact. Oh, my goodness. That was from the iconic Night of the Living Dead, also by George Romero, a black-and-white film from 1968, a crazed tale of nuclear radiation that raises the dead and creates a legion of flesh-eating zombies. Why these kinds of shows have become so popular, I think we can have all kinds of 
speculation about, but they uh, are certainly entertaining. In a post that Dr. Littell posted also on the AubreyDaniels.com website a year later then, also about zombies, Zombies and Resurgence, a Halloween analysis. And this is what he writes. Zombies are known as the living dead, creatures that arise from their graves, eat human flesh, and do other disgusting stuff just to stay semi-alive. Even though this is a well-documented phenomenon, at least if you believe in the ever-expanding zombie literature, relatively little is known about the behavioral mechanisms that underlie this resurrected behavior of zombies until now. Resurgence is a relatively well-researched behavioral phenomenon for a research sampling, and he refers to uh, a special issue of the Mexican Journal of Behavior Analysis on this topic. It involves first reinforcing one response we'll call A. After a period of reinforcing A, that response is extinguished reinforcement is discontinued and a second response B is reinforced when response B subsequently is extinguished response A transiently recurs before diminishing to zero responding is transient because response A is not reinforced were it reinforced of course it would be likely to continue The recurrence of response A defines resurgence. And by the way, I think resurgence is an appropriate term and concept to talk about when discussing zombies, my own thoughts. As several of the articles in the aforementioned special issue and many others published in other journals attest, resurgence has provided a model for the relapse of problem behavior such as drug or alcohol addiction as well as a model for creativity and problem-solving. And now a model for zombie behavior. How cool is that? Zombies, before they were zombies, were pretty much normal Josephs and Josephines. These, by the way, are meant to be the French versions, masculine and feminine, of Joe. I use these because, as is well known, the concept of zombies, pardon the pun, arise from the voodoo culture, and everyone associates voodoo with Haiti, where a French dialect is spoken. So these 2B zombies are going along, behaving as people do, walking, eating, and all the other stuff that goes along with the Homo sapiens label, until one day, for whatever reason, they up and die. Dying is the ultimate extinction, as Skinner puts it, More or less, death is the reduction in the probability of a response to zero. Skinner wrote in Science and Human Behavior. So, what was is no more. Believing in the afterlife, as many voodoo practitioners do, one can assume that some kind of alternative behavior, response B in the above example, begins at their earthly demise. Because behavior does not occur without reinforcement, we can further assume that whatever unearthly behavior was going on and was maintained by some type of reinforcement contingency. But how, 
you now ask, can behavior be maintained if someone is dead? Well, it can't, or at least not for long. So what happens as the dead behavior B is extinguished? Why, previously reinforced behavior recurs, of course. And what was previously reinforcement reinforced than wandering around and trying to find unusual stuff to eat? But there is a problem. Zombies walk weirdly and they eat human flesh. This isn't the behavior we have seen in real life. So if it is resurgent behavior, it isn't exactly like response A as described above. Here's my hunch as to what is going on. No one has examined how really similar resurgent behavior is to the originally reinforced response. It is a research question to be answered. But I will suggest here that there are some qualitative differences between the original and resurged response. This is admittedly going out on a limb, but it is at least a somewhat educated speculation about what happens in resurgence. At least give me a little poetic license here to make my model work. So he goes on. It's also the case that the 2B zombie has been stuffed in the ground and left there to rot so it may be unsurprising that they walk haltingly and don't have much to say. As for the eating of human flesh, it isn't hard to imagine either the taste buds have been affected by their forced subterranean sojourn, or maybe it is just a generalization gradient because it has been said that, and I certainly would not know, human flesh tastes like chicken. So we end up with resurge behavior that resembles its previous life forms of walking and eating, but altered as a result of intermittent induced insults to the body. A simple and elegant account of the perplexing problem of zombie behavior. Or so I would argue. Happy Halloween. Well, on this one as well, I couldn't resist asking a few questions. So this, these are the email questions that I had to Dr. Littell. And he was kindly giving me these responses that follow. You discussed the phenomenon of resurgence and mentioned drug relapse and other societal problems in relation to it. Do you think recidivism in criminal behavior, that's our podcast interest, can be explained in part due to resurgence? It seems a very important concept in behavior and societal problems, and I'm surprised it is not discussed more frequently and I asked him what he thought, and his response was, I am one to be cautious on over-extrapolating, which I think is heavily, too heavily reinforced by the need to justify one's research for funding agencies and the like. Resurgence seems related to the problems you identify, but obviously they don't reduce, reduce down to resurgence alone. The basic research gives some ideas as to where practitioners might look to identify processes and controlling variables of behavior issues, but basic research is basic research. It is not the great guru sitting on the mountaintop spouting off the nature of being or whatever. Resurgence is not an explanation. 
It is, at best, a behavioral process that itself is explained by various kinds of functional relations between present and past behavior. It is easy to see how, in a general sense, recidivism fits into a resurgence paradigm. I am surprised no one has made the connection, or maybe they have, and I have been spending too much time in the lab. He puts a smiley face after that. My cautionary notes above still apply. I then ask, is resurgent behavior slightly different than the original behavior before it? It is, in a sense, a copy of the original, so it is somewhat altered or less effective. Would that be a good description? And he answered me, Another thoughtful question and fodder for experimental analysis. I guess it depends on how you define copy and different. How's that for a hedge? To my knowledge, this question has not been addressed directly. There is some research showing that the amount of resurgence varies as a function of how similar the resurgence test stimulus is to the stimulus under which the target response was originally trained. An interesting experiment would be to train a target response as, say, the center of five response keys, and then during the subsequent resurgence test look to see if the pigeon pecks only the target key or also the other keys. I use pigeons because they are the population with which I am most familiar. In fact, any population could be used for a similar test, of course. I asked, in what ways can resurgent behavior be positive, such as in creativity and problem-solving, as you mentioned in the post? It is interesting that most of the applications of resurgence have been to problem behavior, when in fact at least as much potential lies on the positive side. There isn't as much in the way of applied research extending the analysis into things like education and creativity. One of our current West Virginia University graduate students did a very creative master's thesis in which she examined resurgence of using different kinds of solutions to quadratic equations as a function of students' histories of quadratic equation problem-solving. Hmm. Who knows? Maybe we could research zombies' lost pro-social skills under the right conditions. And I, I think that leaves us on a good note here because behaviorism is all about having some kind of hope. It is about analyzing the problem, even when it's uh, pretty much hopeless like it is for zombies, and steadily improving behavior. So uh, this is, I hope you've enjoyed this and maybe got a little bit regarding shaping and regarding resurgence and feel a little bit more confident about our uh, zombie problems, which in reality only exist in our own imagination. However, I will leave you with the not-so-comfortable segment of the 1979 film Zombie by Italian director Lucio Fulci. Not rated. Something to maybe 
give you some anxiety at night, or otherwise wish you a very happy Halloween. Facebook page and other social media sites.